don't panic, but you should know it's less than two weeks until Christmas. But let's start with the advent of love on the Corey Act Show. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains and the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous strains. I'm sure one of you will tell I'm dragging it out of context, but after we finish this Advent theme of love this week, I actually have another Christmas, let's call it application, one of the texts around the Christmas story that I think might have something to say to us about where we prioritize our lives. Not how, but where. And if you think I t- drag it out of context, I'm going to want to hear about it. Welcome to the Corey Act Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I get to do a whole bunch of things that bring me a lot of joy. One of them is serving the incredible people of Beechwood Church as their pastor for teaching. Beechwood meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville. You are invited. We've been working through Revelation for a while now. You can find a lot of those sermons out on Spotify. Just look for Beechwood Church. Really easy to find both physically and digitally. I'll also be preaching Sunday morning, likely about the two angel encounters, one for Joseph, one for Mary. We'll leave out the one with the shepherds, and we'll, there's some implications I think we can draw from those two. And uh, if your church isn't meeting or if you don't have a church home, you are certainly invited. I, I'm not going to get distracted by that. I'll add that to my notes now. I want to talk about how important the church is, because I had a conversation with someone recently that I think had an honest question, Either, a, a young Christian with some skepticism or, not bewilderment, but like wondering, well, why? Why is that part of it? Why is, why is being part of the church part of following Jesus? And I, I'm not realizing I want to talk about that. But we, we've been using the first segment on the show every week to talk about whatever theme of Advent is coming up. And so the final week of Advent leading up to Christmas is the week of love. The first we talk about hope. Hope for having all of our uh, having all of our needs fulfilled. Then we, then we prepare for that to happen. We feel the peace. There's preparation and peace that week. The peace of knowing God keeps His promises, and we will have all that we need. And then that explodes. Our hope being fulfilled explodes into joy. That was last week. And then at the conclusion of Advent season, as we start walking into this period of time that's looking forward to the work Jesus did, we'll start. Guys, it'll be Easter before we know it. Before we get into that, those sets of holidays, we walk in love. We walk in the obvious love that Jesus brought when he came to earth, put on a body, and dwelt among men. Every week I've tried to have a scripture for you and a song. I want to start with a scripture. It takes me to Romans 5. There's lots of places you could go to talk about the, the love of God and how obvious it is for his people and how at Christmas it is particularly poignant. If you look all over those texts, you'll find various loves. The fact that Elizabeth hears about Mary's pregnancy and isn't bitter. She's an older lady, always wanted to have a kid. She is not embittered by the fact that it was so easy for Mary. She's just happy for her. You look at the story of Joseph and Mary. He was inclined to divorce her quietly when this seeming indiscretion came up. The way betrothal worked then, he could have taken her family for everything they were worth. He could have taken back his 
uh, forgot what it's called now. The uh, what, what the what the what the groom gives for the bride, the price he pays. There's a specific term for that, and I'm it's unforgivable that I can't come up with that term right now. Uh, then he could have taken that dowry. That's it. Thank you, Lord, uh, and for my recall. Dowry, he could have taken his dowry back and then taken much more from her family, but it seems that he actually had affection for her. He loved her instead and was going to try to save face for her, ultimately believing her and, and marrying her. There's demonstrations of love everywhere throughout that story, but there's not a larger demonstration of love at Christmas than the birth itself. That God, after making a promise and a promise and another promise, would bring a chosen one to solve our two biggest problems. The fact that sin keeps wrecking our lives, and two, that that sin ultimately leads to our death, separating those of us, separating, those, separating us from those that we love, and ultimately separating us from our truest relationship, our relationship to God. But outside that Christmas story, there's First John. I think a lot of folks call that the uh, the, the book of love, the love is the word love is used a ton in that book. It's very short if you want to go read that. But I want to take us to Romans 5, starting in verse 6. Just want to read to you about the advent of love in this time of year and Christmas. Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I could sit in verse 6 for a while. I was weak, not strong. You were weak, not strong. I was unappealing, not appealing. And it was for that person, the ungodly. I was ungodly, not godly. At that time, Christ died for me. He was born in the exact moment he was supposed to be, in the exact spot he was supposed to be, to the exact parents he was supposed to, in the right city where he was supposed to. It was at the right time that he came so that he could live those 33 years doing the work he was meant to do and dying the death he was meant to die. While we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, for one, someone like us, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Like if we will do it if it is for a righteous person. Back to the verse, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So he, he's saying of us, we might, if we see someone as particularly righteous, take their punishment of death. Maybe even perhaps if we see someone as good, we might step in for them at our own peril. That's who we would step up for. That's the kind of love we have. But verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. We're going to keep going, but dwell there for a second. While his nation was still astray, Christ comes. While the priests had corrupted the temple, Christ comes. While the, the religion, the systems that God had given them in Israel had been corrupted in the offerings and the the sacrifices. It was into that world Christ comes and into this world where we are unfaithful, where we choose affections, we call these idols, affections that we value more than Christ, where we choose our job and our title there, where we choose our money and the comfort it can buy, where we choose our social media following and the significance that we feel like it gives us, 
the attention of that person that means the world to us, the approval of those folks, all of those idols. Why we, while we were still choosing them, Christ died for us. I could say it this way. I, I'm, hold on. I'm not switching scripture. I'm just saying, put, putting this in the Christmas context. While knowing we would all be sinning, Christmas. While knowing we would all fail, Christ came to die for us. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. I know it's unpopular, and I get it, to talk about the wrath of God, but it's real. It's uncomfortable, but it's real. Wrath is coming for us. And either Jesus will take that wrath on the cross or we will take it on ourselves if we do not submit to him and follow him. And it's good news for the believer, those truly practicing Advent and Christmas. We have been justified by his blood. We've been saved from the wrath of God because he came. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more. Now that we are all reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? That's good news. We were all enemies reconciled to God by his death. Much more we are reconciled and we'll be saved by his life. I already mentioned there that there's something powerful about while we were still sinning, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's Something about this time of year, we all put on our, not Sunday best, our Christmas best. Everything is best face forward. And it, we got a passage here that says, not when you were at your best, but when you were at your worst, you were loved enough by your Father that Christ came. You were loved enough that he experienced everything you do. He was betrayed, suffered injustice. He was mocked. His family thought he was crazy. There was more family strife. He, he suffered, if you can use that word, temptation. He came to experience all those things. There was so much love for his children. We, he came to experience all those things while we were sinning. This time of year presents a ton of facade. There's a lot of comfort, I think, in faking some things. But Jesus didn't come for the sod. For the facade. He didn't come for how we fake. He came for the, the, the real me and you to redeem sinners. You know, there are no, this is part of the love thing. There are no secrets from him. I hope you can internalize that. Somewhere in the Old Testament, I think it's a psalm, says his eyes go to and fro across the earth. He knows all things. And the fact that you're even listening to me right now, because God is so sovereign, shows a love that he wants you to hear. Hey, I saw, and I see. I saw what you did. I see what you're doing. Now I'm calling you to repentance, and I'm calling you to me. I, I came so far to get you. Which leads me to the, the song for the week I wanted to point you to. It's been more typical that I would give you a, a Christmas hymn, uh, but I am a child of the 90s. And believe it or not, there actually were some good Christian songs or Christmas songs, written before 100 years ago. Uh, there's some irony in this for me in that it is likely uh, the guy who will cue this sh show to run on Saturday morning on his radio talk probably played this song a bunch when I was a kid. 
for all I know, it was the first time I ever heard it. It would have been Gary Miller from his radio who played the For Him song. This is such a strange way to save the world. Me, my, my wife and I were going downtown. We listened to this recently. I think she had forgotten it ever existed. It's one of my favorite Christmas songs. It's really from Joseph's perspective. There's a, there's a line in there that I don't even know if it's fully biblically accurate, honestly, but it's powerful. It says, Joseph knew the reason love had to reach so far. And I don't want to exegete a song. It's not worth doing. We exegete scripture. But just those two words are powerful. Joseph knew the reason love had to reach so far. And it's a good thing this time of year if we will focus on the reality that saving us was not a small feat. We were not almost there. We were hopeless and helpless. Love had to reach so far. And so now we sit in the season that's filled with love. It's filled with connection to those that we do love. So here's your Advent call for this week. Let that love roll up. Every time you feel that love for your spouse, for those kids, for your grandparents, for whatever experience and time you're going to have, always let it roll up. Don't let it terminate there. Let it roll up to say, Lord, I love you. Not just for your good gifts, not for all of this provision, but for who you are. For this inauguration of your kingdom, for keeping that ancient promise that you would come and have your heel bitten, but that you would crush the head of our greatest enemies. So as you love, let it roll up to the Father that, get, that loved you enough to give you the greatest gift, that is Jesus. When we return, I actually do want to work another idea out of the Christmas story about how we should prioritize our lives and where we prioritize them. I might be taking a step too far. We'll find out. We'll do that when you come back and a lot more for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Be on discernment alert because I'm about to give a a thought I think uh, we could take from an application from the Christmas story. It's not, the, it's not the first application from the Christmas story, obviously. It's like a bottom. It's, 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 near, it's nearer to 100 of the lessons you can take out of it. But if you just straight up think I'm wrong, I don't want to be. One of my themes in life is I never want to be wrong one second longer than I have to. And so I want to learn. I want to be corrected. If you think I'm pulling this a little too far, you can reach me at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, but not on TikToker or Snapper Chatter because I'm old and I don't do that stuff. But you can find me there. You can try to send some corrections. You can also just connect there, and I would love for you too. There's something about the, the – uh, I should tell you the context first. The context is this. You know how over the last year or so I've been telling you I've been listening more to that uh, Doug Wilson guy, and every now and then I do, and let's just call them a a muscular version of Christianity. They're 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 a little bit more abrasive than I like. They're they're a little bit more uh, let, let's just, let's leave it there. They're more abrasive than I, than my style is. But I've been interested in them because they, they are a, they're a unique voice. I don't hear a lot from them. And from that group, I believe it's called the Canon Press. There's a book out now that I haven't fully read. I started trying to find some 
audiobook. There were some shortened versions. I haven't gotten around to it, but someone from the Canon Press, from this you know muscular, kind of loud, abrasive Christian group, wrote a book called The Case for Christian Nationalism. Now, that word has all kinds of baggage, but they wrote, they wrote the book. And there's lots of critiques. Kevin DeYoung, who I trust a great deal, has wrote, written a critique. There's a very long four-part critique from someone else I, I trust a lot uh, that I've been reading through, haven't finished it up. We might talk about it today if we, run out, if we have time. I wouldn't mind telling you what I've learned thus far. But one of the immediate reactions I had to this very large debate happening at a fairly intellectual level, I'm, I'm proud of the folks who are debating it because they're doing it uh, dispassionately, not a lot of emotionalism, and they're doing it biblically, intellectually. But one of the, the reactions I had is I, I wish someone would insert into the conversation about why about how we cannot just pursue Christian nationalism, the idea of Christian nation, and I wonder if we could pursue Christian localism. What we just do around us, not at the exclusion of nationalism, not at the exclusion of the federal government, not at the exclusion of the nation, but just thinking, if I can't win the nation myself, I wonder if I could have Christian localism. My neighborhood, my local church, the school board, does the county council, the city council. How about some Christian localism? And that's where I I think I might be drawn too far from the Christmas story, but I think there's something to say here. Joseph is given, Joseph of the Christmas story, is given this command, go to Bethlehem, go to the small town, not go to Rome, not go to try to take the their version of the Senate, don't go try to kill Caesar, or for that matter, don't try to kill the, the local, you know, Herod, it's just, no, just go to Bethlehem. What happens when I'm finished in Bethlehem? Well, there's going to be a flight to Egypt that you have to do, but go back to your tiny town. Start there. And even when Jesus' ministry starts, starts in his hometown. The, the places around Galilee crosses the, the Lake of Galilee. We call it the Sea of Galilee for some reason and works in some of those cities, just, just locally. I wonder if there is something to the fact that we might be more effective if every Christian would stop trying to take the nation and just try to be faithful with their neighbors. Just try to be faithful with their local community. I am totally convinced our local communities are the place to start. I can't change D.C. For that matter, unless I go move there, I can't change the insanity of Portland or L.A. I can't change the insanity of Austin, Texas or Seattle, Washington. But I can preserve easily. I can help protect and preserve the upstate of South Carolina and the Christian influence on it. I'll give you some examples. When I was a young buck, uh, probably, man, this is probably 15 years ago by now, there's a store in Easley that is, let's just call it an adult store. My understanding, obviously I've never been in, um, I don't, my understanding is that they sell porn, it's that they sell a lot of sex-related items, apparel, that kind of thing. And the store's actually been around in Easley. It had been around in Easley for a long time. There's a there's one over in Cherrydale. And it was around when I was a kid. Didn't even know what it was and, until this happened. Because my whole life, their windows were opaque. They were blacked out. So you don't really know what's going on in there. And then, one day, 
I was probably 18. Uh, no, I was in college by then because I was on radio filling in for Dr. Bean by then. So I would have been in my early 20s. And one day I drive by and the windows have been tr- made transparent. And you could see what's going on in there. And I would call it inappropriate for any child to see. And that same place was putting out a, a big bus by the road to advertise what they were doing in there. There was some explicit images on there. You can't technically call it pornography, but something related to or ramping up to become pornography. And I recall I, I got on the air at his radio, and or at, well, I guess back then it would have been Christian Talk, Christian Talk 660 back then, and said, we, you know, we should do something about this. Not, not what's going on in D.C. right now, not the Tea Party, not a red wave. What about this? This one thing that we got a member of our community who is, it is that, that person who owns that store. They're a member of our community. They, they might have kids in Little League for that matter. They have, they're going to go to our restaurants. Might we be able to not ask the government to do anything yet, but just pressure and ask, will you stop that? It's not appropriate. And I heard from a lot of people that they, some called, some emailed, some went by the store. I don't really suggest that with letters. And while the, the windows are still transparent, they took down the explicit images on, that, on the bus that was advertising. And some of the stuff they put in the windows, I, I could tell, they, they put their most mundane things in the windows. But even uh, as we talk about these big national issues of grooming children and uh, what are these called, uh, drag queen story hours, what's one small thing you can do? Well, the, expl- the sexually explicit content around you well, you can avoid it, and you can, when it's in public places where children can consume it, you can pursue a city council, a county council, not just running, but asking them to do something about it. I, I saw the story that Kirk Cameron, not a guy I'm a huge fan of. I think he's a brother. I just don't think he's nearly as good as he thinks he is at pr- production and entertainment. Uh, he was rejected from reading his children's book at a lot of libraries. A lot of libraries told him no, and a lot of these libraries are, are libraries that had in drag queens, who, who of course should not be around children. And I, I noticed that there were some pastors doing some of these story times. I think this is the way. I, I think the way is not trying to get to D.C., to take over the nation. I think the way is go to Bethlehem, not to Rome. I think the way is your street, not the Colosseum. It's your community. It's not Congress. I could be wrong, but I think we'd all benefit from focusing on localism. For real, I got to be honest, I don't know fully what that means yet. I see a church around here in my town. They do a great food pantry. You know, I think I know at least two of those. I know lots of churches involved in good news clubs, getting into the schools. Heard about a church in Texas recently who, I don't know how you feel about it. I, actually, I'd, I'd be interested to see how you guys feel about it. Their Christmas project is, uh, is this. Uh, there's a part of their town that is the area where all the strip clubs are. So that's it's apparently like a dozen down the strip here, and they just started showing up on Sundays in the afternoon with wrapped presents and saying to these women, "We got we got your kids. Don't don't worry about Christmas gifts for them. We're gonna we're gonna take care of them." 
I don't know how to pursue localism and what that looks like. Here is what I am telling you, though. If we would pursue localism with the passion with which we pursue Washington, D.C. and all of its powers, we'd be a healthier and happier people, and I think we'd be much more effective. We, we would be much more clearly in people's faces as saying, these things that we want, it actually is because we love people. I could tell you this, everything about my ideology. I believe the things I believe, and I want the policies I want. I want the things in the world that I want, because I love people. And I know that if we will behave in ways that comport to our designer and his design for all things, people will flourish. Families will be better off. Economic flourishing will be there. We're going we're to have what we need to take care of ourselves, and we won't need collectivism. We'll just be able to, to thrive if these ideas are, are put into place. And I, I don't know that we can make that point only pursuing power in D.C. I think it's going to have to happen at local levels. So, I'm not telling you don't pursue federal government things. I am just saying, if, if you are super active, and you, you, would, you would maybe even call yourself like an activist for these things, think about city council. Think about county council. Think about school boards. Think about local action. Think about your library. And, and what you might do there, get creative. I'd love to hear about it at CoreyTruactShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruactShow at gmail.com. What you might be able to do. Give me some ideas. I might want to jump in there. Because I can tell you this. The people who want all the opposite things of you, the people who want to work against the values that we hold, that I think are biblical values, they are thinking about it. They are aggressively seeking the imposition of their worldview, the imposition of their secular progressive religion. They are thinking about how to make the world comport itself to them. We have a beautiful story to tell. We have beautiful ideas to present. And if we'll start focusing locally, I just think we'll be more effective. All right, I got to move out of that. Let's do this one. I know this time of year is not the time to talk about it because everybody makes terrible nutritional decisions. But I saw two stories back to back. It's rare that this happens that are seemingly related and they're out of character for me as well. So here's the first uh, headline I saw. It's from the Trust for America's Health. Headline, nation's obesity academic is growing. 19 states have adult obesity rates above 35%. That's 16 states more than last year. So we're, we are heading uh, in the wrong direction on our national health crisis that is obesity. I, I would add, you know, we, we talk about health crises a lot. We can go back to the, the COVID crisis if you want to. O- obesity, we should all know, is an aggravating factor for everything. Whatever pre a predilection you have towards a heart problem, obesity will make it worse. Whatever predilection you have towards, uh, we have plenty of evidence to say that many cancers, if you have a predilection towards that, obesity will make it worse. We found that it was the case that if you were obese, you were much more likely to have a worse case of COVID. Here's some from this uh, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. They found 41.9, let's round that up, 42% of adults have obesity. I don't even know if I like the way that's phrased. Like it's a communicable disease. Like they have obesity. Like I know this. I can't catch it. I can't catch obesity. It's going to have to be something that I do. 
Um, and interestingly, in in our world, it's the uh, the poorer you are, the more likely you are to be obese, and the more rural you are. We have you know, calorie rich foods, highly processed foods. They're and those are the cheaper things to eat. I notice that every time I go out to a restaurant, the thing I want that is lower carb has healthy fats and the highest protein, that's what costs the most. But if you just want them to keep bringing you nachos and cheese in various forms of potatoes with other cheeses, those, those are the ways you're going to save money. So now, I promise you I'm going somewhere specific. We have this obesity rate that is affecting our national health. It's bad. We've, we've heard even, uh, we can't even now uh, recruit the, the number of military we need. We don't have enough young men who are physically fit enough to to field a military. Now, granted, the future of warfare is largely digital and mechanical, so we probably need more software engineers than we need infantry. But I can tell you this, those that we might get into a conflict with, they don't think that way. Their, their populace is not in that same situation. So, now... That's true. We have this obesity problem. And then I saw this story, and it flies against some of my most deeply held instincts. You know that some of my deeply held instincts are against any form of conspiracy theory. I'm just not on board for conspiracy theory of any sort. And then there's just there are some realities, some uncomfortable realities that even people like me have to accept. For example, from the Washington Post, here is your headline. One group shaping nutrition policy earned millions from junk food ma- from junk food makers. New documents show that the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics invested in food stocks and accepted donations from junk food, sugar, and soda makers, even as it trained dietitians who teach us how to eat. Now, the fact that the people who are going to make nutrition suggestions are getting millions of dollars from food companies who make junk food that doesn't necessarily mean, listen, this is true, it doesn't mean that it will taint their suggestions. It, do, it doesn't mean that you can't get good dietary advice from dietitians and nutritionists just because the organizations who trained them got millions of dollars from junk food companies. It just makes it harder. I will read you to one, probably just one paragraph. The documents recently discovered described a report in Public Health Nutrition. It's a a peer-reviewed journal. It included thousands of pages of the Academy's financial records, tax returns, and internal emails. They show that between 2011 and 2017, this organization, by the way, that certifies all of your dietitians and nutritionists, this organization took more than $4 million in donations from food companies, including Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Nestle, Hershey, Kellogg's, and Conagra. Those six companies, if you just walk down your snack aisle with all the chocolatey, nutty, salty, chippy things down that aisle, you're going to see everything is owned by Coke, Pepsi, Nestle, Hershey, Kellogg's, or Conagra. And for that matter, the, the biggest uh, culprit in our collective obesity problem, it is the soda companies. And it's not even close. Guys, uh, if I can... Just give you some, uh, I guess it's not my place, but if I can give you some nutritional advice, here, here's a, ma- a main one that changed things for me. Never drink your calories. Eat your calories. If, you have a, if you're not calorie counting, I think it's a good idea to do, but as just some nutritional advice, 
if you're about to drink something and you look on the side of it and it has 200, 300 calories, don't drink that thing. Don't drink your calories. That's a terrible idea. There's In this world, there's too many alternatives that say zero calories on the side. And if you are sucking down Cokes and Mountain Dews with all that sugar, yet yeah, that's doing it. The primary culprit of our health crisis. I mean, obesity is a health crisis. It's that we suck down so much sugar through a straw. If, so that you hear me saying, I'm not telling you not to eat sweet things, and that dessert is inappropriate. Dessert is, from time to time, appropriate. I, go, go enjoy yourself. But, man, uh, the, there is a genuine, deep difference between drinking a Coke and having a brownie. You still need to watch how much brownie you take in, but I'm telling you, the, the, the sugary sodas are killing us all. It's a, it's a really bad situation. So, okay, Corey, why are you telling us that we're more obese than ever, and why are you then telling us that one of the reasons that we might, we might be this way is that those giving us nutritional advice get a lot of money from these companies? Well, one, I don't, I don't want to tell you not to trust your nutritionist or your dietitian. They, they do good work, and it's not necessarily that they're, that they're just bought off by big food. I don't tend to live in that world. But it does tell us this. We are, it, it is our responsibility, it's incumbent upon us to take care of ourselves. And I, I said this recently on a show, I don't think I emphasized it enough. It's one of the things, that, another thing to take away from Christmas. The incarnation, God put on a body. It is apparently the case that God cares what we do with our bodies. So let us be a group of people that takes care of them. You know, I, I talk about often ways to be different than the world. I'll I'll say to men and women, hey, you want to be distinct in this world? Men, say something nice about your wives around other men. Ladies, you want to be distinct in this world? Brag on your husband. I saw saw that in one of our couples in the church recently, the Wootens. Hey, Jessica Taylor, if you're listening. She just said nice nice things about his parenting. Well, okay. You know how many other women did that that day? Very few. (laughs) You know? I mean, most men are getting pounded uh, verbally about how, how they don't parent, how they're not being dads. You want to be distinct in this world? Say something nice about your spouse. You want to be distinct in this world when there's gossip going on and complaining about the boss? Say something nice. Like, be, be affirming. You want to be distinct in this world as well? Take care of yourself. That's not, I'm, I would never, ever try to burden anybody with my lifestyle. Like, hey, get up at 5.30 every morning, go to the gym, and never eat, never eat dessert, and really consume sugar almost never. Like, I would never burden you with that. But definitely better than the average American? Yeah, take care of yourself. This is just, I'll, I'll give you an example, another positive example in my own life. My elder brother had some heart problems that, that feels like, actually it feels pretty close, but it's probably been 18 months ago. And he just, he just got, he got on it. Got on a, a walking regimen that now that we are kind of neighbors, I see it. And he just grabbed, grabbed the problem by the throat and said, okay, I'm going to deal with this now. This is part of our call. Part of the incarnation says, God cares about our bodies. Take care of your bodies. Be distinct in this world by actually caring about your health. All right, I'll leave that be. Uh, When we return, I am not. You know what we'll do? I'm going to start giving you the beginning of my review of this Christian nationalism conversation that's happening in an intellectual way out in the Christian world. Give you the preview of it. I suspect in the new year there's going to be a whole episode on it. We'll do that and more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts.
president in the new year, the debate coming out of this book published by Canon Press called The Case for Christian Nationalism is something that will be a theme for my show. I think in a lot of Christian intellectual circles, we'll be debating it. It's a seemingly finally really clear intellectual shot across the bow of, of a guy just straight up saying some, some things that uh, we thought others were implying, and I'll tell you about it here in just a second. But I do want to do this only in a cursory way, and we'll give it a more thorough treatment in the new year. I forgot to tell you, this is the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and on his radio talk. Glad you are here. If after you hear any of this, you want to respond to the show, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. And you can also reach the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. Also, by the way, <laughs> I signed up for Twitter Blue. You know, it's like 10 bucks a month. Gives me that powerful little blue check mark. I'm going to start tweeting a little more. And I think I like Twitter a little bit more now. Like, uh, the Twitter files have been uh, not surprising, but illuminating about what happens. Like, I, I, with the social media companies, it, it really tells us what happens when all the most powerful information companies on the planet get all their employees from the San Francisco, San Francisco Bay Area. And it makes me want some other billionaire to go buy Google and then somebody buy Facebook, somebody buy Apple, and just tell us all the weirdo stuff they're doing. Uh, I don't think Elon Musk can buy all of them. So one of you, you should start a GoFundMe, and let's try to see if we can buy Google. All right, let's do this. Before talking about the book, I think it's uh, an important preface. It's something I've been wanting to say. Because someone agrees with us on any given, let's say, political thing, uh, some kind of cultural thing, like they, they also see the madness of gender ideology. They also see the immorality of puberty blockers for kids and genital mutilation. Like they, they see all that. Just because they see all that, it does not mean that they're actually on our side, that they're kindred. We might be joining them with them on a, on a fight in the culture, but they're not one of us. And so I, I need to say out loud, there's some, there's some caution to be taken of some conservative voices that Christians love. Not telling you don't listen to them. I'm saying listen with your Christian ears on, knowing the people I'm listening to, they're not Christians. So they're going to miss some stuff. For example, I like Jordan Peterson. I think he has a lot of good stuff to, to say to young men. We called masculinity toxic. We told women the greatest thing to be is a man. Uh, we... In, and because of that, we've, we have a crisis of manhood, a crisis of masculinity, men not playing the roles they're supposed to play. Because I can just tell you this from the North Greenville University setting, being in the college setting, there are way more higher-achieving women right now than men. We had a co- uh, scholarship competition with 60-some-odd, um, let's go with co- competitors, and well more than two-thirds were women. I think maybe 10 or 11 were guys. And we're not an outlier. That's, that's the stats everywhere. And I could get in deeply the stats of the problem we're having with men. And Jordan Peterson does a good job of speaking into that. And now he'll say some things that sound Christian. He just did a series called Exodus. And it's about the book of Exodus on, uh, what is that called, the Daily Wire? And I haven't listened to all of it. Some of it's okay. Some of it's straight up wrong about the meaning of Exodus. It leads me to Dennis Prager. He has Dennis Prager on. It's, 
it's important to know Dennis Prager thinks almost everything you do about the world, or I mean, if you're generally a conservative person, generally of the Judeo-Christian ethic and how society should be run. But you get Jordan Peterson, who guy who kind of talks Christian, but he's not. He's a his philosophy is called the Jungian from a. But really more of a mental health philosopher, a psychology philosopher who kind of followed some teachings of Jesus. You get Jordan Peterson in a room with the very, very Jewish Dennis Prager, and they start talking about Exodus, and they are not going to give you the God of the Bible's version of Exodus. Not what they want you to know about it. Listen, I know Ben Shapiro has become the biggest voice in conservative broadcasting and podcasting. His company's doing incredible things, and I, you know, God, God bless them. Not a Christian, guys. He's a practicing Jew. He rejects your Jesus. That's that's important to remember. Doesn't mean you can't partner. Doesn't mean you can't be a subscriber. Doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to them. I'm just saying, especially when they start talking about theology, no, they probably have some stuff wrong. I know we've, and Matt Walsh has had his moment, right? This year was, uh, what's it called? What What is a woman? And he has been the loudest voice against all the, gender madness when it comes to children. He's he's had a big year. It's probably been the banner year of his career, and a lot of Christians love him. Remember, he's a Catholic. Some There's probably some Catholics, I'm sure there are, who are believers. I'm not sure about Matt Walsh. Even the way he's, he talks, the way he talks now about you know, the pagans around us, it's a very Catholic way. It's almost like we're going to take control and do what we want to with the pagans because they're pagans anyway. Which leads me to this book that's caused plenty of response. Because I'm not saying this guy who wrote it, and I'm sorry, I don't remember his name right now. The book is called The Case for Christian Nationalism, published by Canon Press. I'm not saying he's not a brother. I am saying just because someone generally agrees with you on some stuff doesn't mean you should accept them on other things as an authority. And so it is likely the case, I mean, I know it is the case, this guy agrees with all of your conservative thinking. He knows that we should have smaller government and less government, that we need families to be the the source of security and not the federal government. He knows states should have more power than the federal government. He knows that our sexual ethic is madness in the, in the country. He knows that abortion is murder. He knows all the things that you know, and that that makes you think he's he's right on the same side, but okay, just because Ben Shapiro and what are they called Matt Walsh, Jordan Peterson, and the other guy I said was Dennis Prager, just because they have all those same all of those same things correct doesn't mean they have the Bible correct. So careful on trusting the word of these folks who agree with you politically and thinking they know some things biblically. In that vein. This guy who wrote the book, again, can't remember his name, he is more of a political uh, philosopher, more of a public policy type guy, not a theologian. I'm going to give you the summary of his book that I think would be, he, I think he would think it's fair. I've skimmed enough and then read enough reviews to say that this is kind of his summary. For Christians in America, and I don't know if he would apply this to Christians everywhere else, but Christians in America, we should be pursuing the institution of God's law. So whatever policy God would have in place, viewed as the tablets of the Ten Commandments and the 613 laws of the 
Old Testament, those that could be civilly applied, we need to be pursuing them by almost all means necessary. So we want power to execute someone who, uh, a woman who commits adultery and ruins her family. A man who commits adultery and ruins her family. We need to be pursuing the power to execute them. I know that immediately sounds like, whoa. But I want to be open-minded to you. I'm open-minded. I've told you now for over a year. I'm struggling through what I think. This idea of theonomy uh, and the idea of not having theocracy, but that we're here to pursue godly and biblical laws being put into place. What does that mean? What's What's it look like? He is straight up saying the tablets of the Old Testament, the tablets, not just the Ten Commandments, but all of them, we need to get those into law. So much so that he says near the end of the book that revolution is justified. Force is justified. Violence is justified. If if you have an oppressive regime instituting secularism and anti-God policy, and if it takes physical force, go do it. I think he also has this odd... I didn't know this was part of the Christian nationalism thing. He has he makes a very strong argument that ethnic gathering is normal and good. So the idea that white America, white church, black America, black church, that Asians gathering in their neighborhoods, Hispanics gathering in their neighborhoods, that this is good, that like attracts like. We shouldn't that we only think that we're only uncomfortable with that because a secular world told you to be uncomfortable with it, but it's really not any kind of big deal. These are seem to be, and so by the way, that means um, uh, ch- almost changing the, the idea of nation. It's not just borders and documents that make up a country. It's an ethnos. And separation of the ethnos is, is good because everyone should be for their nation. And that's another uh, big emphasis apparently in the book is we, 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 we need not be ashamed of saying every Christian around the world, I love my nation. I'm for my nation. By the way, I, th- I think he's right about that. I mean, not you can go too far into idolatry, but yeah, it's 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 good for the Ugandan Christian to say, yeah, I like Uganda. I think God has blessed Uganda in these ways. It's good for the. I'm trying to think of other ones that start with you. A Ur- Uruguayan Christian to say, yeah, you're Uruguay, Uruguay, however you say it is good, and I like it for these reasons, and for the one of the United States is is good. It's, it's can say the same thing. Like we're all looking for the same kingdom to come. It's it's global, but we're fine from where we're from. We like it. Now, again, I want to entertain it. I want to go read the book myself. When I can find a full audiobook version, I think I am going to listen to it. And I, I want to come up with my own arguments. I've also read now quite a few responses from folks I trust. I think Kevin DeYoung at the Gospel Coalition has the one that asks the least of you. It's a long one, guys. I mean, it'll take you a long time to read, but he's thorough. And I've now, I've now found one that Kevin DeYoung has recommended. It's four parts, and it looks like it's going to be hours and hours. It's almost like a guy has written a book already to respond to the book. But here are just some takeaways I have thus far that I want to put out there when we think about the concept of Christian nationalism. I think we need to remember what, what Jesus means when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. That comes in context of swords being drawn. If my Jesus is saying here, if if my kingdom were of this world, there'd be angels here. They're not taking me. I'm, but my kingdom's not. So put away your swords and work on the kingdom that is forever, the kingdom of heaven. 
So I want to reject outright the idea that Christians taking power to inf- by force and violence to, to enforce Christian laws on others, I want to reject that outright. Some of you might think I'm wrong on that. I think I actually know a couple of you who do think I'm wrong about that. I want to engage with you on it. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email show at gmail.com. Maybe we can even get together and have a conversation. So that's one. I reject that outright. The pursuit of Christian people is our first calling. We are to pursue seeing that humans follow Jesus. That's our first calling. We don't get up out of the bed every morning thinking about the federal government. We don't get up out of the bed every morning thinking about our governor and our state legislatures and our Congress and our Supreme Court. That seems to be where this author is. Power is in the government. Go get it and institute Christianity. Our first calling that Jesus gave us, that we shouldn't be distracted from, is the Great Commission. Go therefore and preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That mission statement in there, was there any clause or any way to think that your primary mission, our primary mission as the church, is to take control of governments and to institute Christianity? I, I can't find that there. So our first pursuit is making Christians. That does not come at the negation of pursuing Christian policies. I had this conversation recently with somebody and, and said, I think something I've said to you guys, of course I want Christian, my Christian nation. I actually want all the nations to be Christian. I want Australia to be a Christian nation. I want Russia to be a Christian nation. I want Ukraine to be a Christian nation. South Korea, China. I want all the nations to be Christian. The definition of that is Christian people live there. They want Christian things. They have Christian values. Yes, I I want a Christian nation as defined as there's a bunch of Christians there and they institute Christian stuff. So we do not create Christian nations by force. We should pursue making people Christians. And one of the consequences of that is you might actually have a Christian nation with Christian laws. We'll flesh out this more in the new year. Thank you for listening to the show. I'll be back with another new edition next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.